Philippi was an outpost in the Roman Empire in the East. Patriotism and nationalism were its hallmarks. Paul writes to the church there to remind them of their call to something higher, a power greater than any nation or military. Jesus is the one true Lord, the only one worthy of anyone's devotion. But Jesus is not one to lord his power over us. Jesus is the God who gave up everything to serve out of love. And we as followers are called to follow his example. This is a series about following the ways of Jesus. And in the midst of anything that comes against us, know that joy and peace because Jesus, the king of the universe, has come so close as to live within us. We are partway, two-thirds of the way, I think, through our series on the letter that Paul wrote to the church in Philippi, um, and I'm kind of picking up from where we left off last week. Basic context that we all need is that this was written uh, by the Apostle Paul while he was imprisoned, and it was written to this church in Philippi, of which we know uh, he had particular fondness for. Um, there were some of his, his best friends were there. And he knows that they are very concerned about what he is going through because they also are experiencing persecution uh, at the hands of the Roman Empire. And he also knows that they are in conflict, which is what he's, he's also addressing in this letter. But where we've got to today in today's passage um, is where he is addressing what they are experiencing, the age-old problem of false teaching from within. So let us now, as we're supposed to do as the, the good 20th century uh, Christians that we are, we're not, are we? We're 21st. Yeah. <laughs> just heard that. I just caught that. Uh, we're, we're 21st, but whether we were 20th century or 21st centuries, we are supposed to do this. And it is um, know what is different about our context. We're not a Roman colony. We're not a part of this brand new movement. But there are lots of things that this passage can still speak to about our lives today. So let us consider what ways our culture may make us susceptible to the same things. What ways are we being influenced by false teaching? And as an extension of that, how do we determine whose voices we should listen to? Uh, Dustin is going to come and read to us now. Uh, and the very observant among you will notice that we're going to recap um, a few of the verses that Ed uh, taught on last week uh, because these verses flow directly out of those. Uh, this is Philippians 3, 10 through 21. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so, somehow, attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us, then, who are mature should take such a view of things, and if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters, and just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. 
For, as I have often told you before, and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. All right, I'm gonna jump straight into verses 18 and 19. Because what Paul is dealing with is quite simple. It's what we all need to deal with when it happens. When something is getting in the way of the unequivocal saving work of Jesus. It's something that we can't um, be shy about. Paul was not shy about when the fact that what we believe is all and always about what Jesus has done and who he is. So it's not totally clear what these teachers were in fact proposing. Many think Paul is still referring to the Judaizing Christians who uh, Paul referred to with very strong language early in the chapter that Ed spoke on last week, who were trying to co-opt Gentile Christians back into the law. But the language here um, that he uses about stomachs in verse 19 um, makes others think that he was perhaps speaking to a different group of infiltrators. Their God is in their stomach, it says, which is the word koila, um, which is a word that Paul also uh, uses in his letter to the Corinthians to refer to sexual organs. So this is kind of more to mean their God is in their unrestrained appetite, their God is in their lust. So many commentators think he's referring much more likely to a group similar to uh, the group in Corinth um, of ex-pagan temple dwellers who were essentially saying, yes, because of what Jesus has done in our spirits, it doesn't actually matter what we do with our bodies. Um, so we can just go back to doing whatever we used to do um, with all the sexual orgies and all that good fun stuff. For our purposes, it perhaps isn't necessarily um, what we need to do to determine exactly who Paul was speaking to, but what he was speaking to, which was any and all attempt to adapt the gospel and syncretize it with our own old, comfortable, cultural ways. And without Paul, without Apple, to come and speak to us directly about our circumstances, how do we work out who to listen to, who to allow to influence us? How do we work out who the enemies of the cross are, whose mind is set on earthly things? It's a very important question. In what I can only describe as the ultimate act of rebellion that any child of mine could commit against me, two of my daughters, who by the way are very, very happy for me to share this illustration with you, are obsessed with the Kardashians. <laughs> they adore them, they follow everything they do, they wanna watch it every week. More than weekly, they want to, they're following them on social media, they wanna see everything they're doing. Do you know which Kardashian dress, dressed up as another Kardashian who was pregnant at the Met? I do, I can't help it. It's what's being talked about in my household. I don't think they're obsessed with the Kardashians because of their lady boss business acumen. <laughs> I don't know what it is. I do know that they're not embarrassed of it. I was recently 
very comforted to be reminded that a mark of a securely attached child, which of course we all want, don't we as parents, um, a mark of a securely attached adolescent is when that they reach this phase of their lives. It's, it's, the, it's the natural and healthy thing to push against and rail against and question the value of um, the values that their parents hold. Just some minor comfort. The solution that I have, that I am running with, which I am running out of steam for, is that I say they're allowed to watch it if, if we can watch it together, and then we can have a discussion about how their values don't necessarily line up with our values. <laughs> but it requires me watching it, so, and it doesn't, it doesn't appear that they're running out of energy for it. For the record, just, you know, I'm not actually making any comment on any individual person. It's about the show's values and their social media values that I have a big problem with. I'm sure they're perfectly lovely people behind this, the rest of it. <laughs> we are made as social and relational beings to be influenced by others. Not like lemmings. Not because we're not brilliantly clever and able to read scripture and hear God's voice for ourselves. But all of us, even those who lead, yes, this is absolutely true of your church leaders as anybody else, all of us need role models. We need instruction and guidance and from time to time, people to follow. So can I ask you, who are you looking to for that? If you're not following anyone, can I suggest you might want to look at that too? When Paul says in verse 15, all you who are mature should see things like this, he's actually a little play on words from him, which is why I wanted to go back to include verse 12. Because in verse 12 he says, not that I have already obtained all of this, and the word for obtained uh, can also be translated as perfected and can also be translated as mature. It's from the Greek word teleos. It's just a little lull from Paul. I haven't reached perfection, but to all you who have is, is kind of what he's saying there. For all of Paul's wisdom and knowledge of how closely he knows Jesus' heart, for all the ways that he is confident and assured to be church, teaching the early churches in how to go about their gospel-shaped lives, he is, of course, about to tell them explicitly to follow, them, follow him in uh, verse 17. He had no problem admitting his weakness. In another letter, he uh, describes himself as the worst of all sinners. And it is something that I have noticed to be true of all of the wisest and most mature uh, people I have ever known, the ones that I look up to. They have no problem admitting where they are weak. It's precisely what we looked at on the weekend away in terms of humility. Humility, of course, not being this kind of putting ourselves down thing. It's not about our lowering our sense of self-worth. It actually has to do with the proper estimation of our self-worth the stance of a creature before the creator that is so clear on our standing as beloved and known and included and children as heirs, that we have no issue uh, admitting our weakness. Because the closer we get to Jesus, I have noticed, the nearer we are to his heart, the more, dare I say, mature we are, the more comfortable we are, with the fact that we fail miserably to live up to the standards that he has set for us in how we love him, in how we love ourselves, and how we love each other. But the more we know ourselves to be loved, the more it's okay to be honest about those failures with him and with each other, as Paul models here, I think. 
Somebody remarked to me very wisely this week that when she experiences the Holy Spirit in his power in her body, like she did on the weekend away, like we will always, always, always invite you to come and partake in at the end of every service because we don't believe there's any point in doing any of this without the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. But her observation was that when she experiences that in her body, in healing and in um, kind of just hearing God's voice and hearing him sort of speak to her and um, gift her, that she also always experiences this urge to repent, which I found very interesting because it's definitely been my experience. And as a matter of sort of record of anyone that's ever been around what we would call a revival, it's a definite known marker of those things is this thing called repentance. When we experience God, who he is, how much he loves us, and how powerful he is, we see how far from his perfection we are. But it never, ever, in my experience, feels coercive or punitive, corrective. We are led by this love to change our minds, which is the, what the word repentance really means. So this is why, in the philosophy of discipleship that we have here, Ed and I have always believed that it's better to leave the changing work of the Holy Spirit to him. So you won't find a lot of behavioral codes for membership here. You won't find tithing minimums or accountability demands. What we do with our bodies, our minds, our money and our relationships really does matter. We won't be shy about teaching it. But we truly believe it is far better to leave the changing work to the Holy Spirit. It does get very messy from time to time. But the call is exactly what Paul says earlier in this. Forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, we are all on this journey if we allow it, if we can open ourselves to it, to be changed day by day and week by week. So that was the first one, a mark of a godly influence should be an ability to admit and a comfort with our weakness. Secondly, a mark of godly influence or influences that we might want to look to should be a comfort with difference. This really stood out to me this week. I don't know how many times I've read this passage before. This really jumped out to me because Paul is unequivocal about not following people that distract us from the, the saving work of Jesus being the only thing that we're doing here together. But he did not need the Philippians to agree with him on all matters. In verse 15, if on some point you think differently to me, that too God will make clear to you. I'm not bothered if you disagree with me on some things. Paul can leave it in God's hands to reveal to them if they want to. And I wonder if the Philippians would probably said, yeah, well, we're leaving it to, to God's hands to reveal it to you, Paul, whatever these issues that they were disagreeing with. Paul seems very happy to let it go. Have you ever noticed how highly correlated a need to be right is with a fragile ego? I certainly know it's true of me when I feel most afraid in my sense of self, particularly in my leadership, I am most incapable of being disagreed with. But Paul is so confident in his authority and in the changing work of the Spirit. He tells them in writing, I'm leaving it to God. It needs to be okay to disagree, to let it go when someone doesn't hold the same opinions as we, that we do about politics about the impossible task of arranging humans together that politics is, about issues of theology. I have long since 
um, my entire Christian life, I think, I uh, have known about the teaching of Tim Keller. And I have, whenever I'm, you know, particularly stumped on uh, how to speak on a passage or, you know, bored by what the commentaries say about it, I'll always go to, I'll find a sermon because he was, he, he preached for, you know, decades. And his, his way of finding something in a, in a passage that you just wouldn't have even dreamt was there is just, I mean, honestly, second to none in my experience. And what took some getting over for me is that he does not uh, believe as a matter of kind of his, you know, integrity and theological interpretation of the passages in the New Testament that speak about women in leadership. He does not believe that women should lead. Do you know what I found out after he died earlier this year? Which blew my mind. And it didn't at the same time because of just the way that he was. He personally was in contact with quite a number of women who led who led churches and different organizations because he just knew he had something to share with them. And it didn't matter to him that he disagreed as a matter of doctrine. He just wanted to use everything that he had to build Jesus' church, which I just found so incredible. Whether someone can hold a differing opinion and the way that they disagree can reveal an awful lot about the person and who they are, can't it? Just take a look on social media right now. Take a look at all the rightness, all the defensiveness, all the ways that we've become so comfortable in treating those who disagree with us. So if I may segue into my biannual pastoral statement about your relationship with social media for just a moment. Just to remind you about the size of our neocortices, we are not made to have connections with this many human beings. We are not made to carry a whole world of pain. And we need to have our eyes open to the way that these apps are very cleverly designed by their impossible algorithms that most of us will never begin to understand, designed to convince us of our rightness. The dopamine hit of a confirmed bias being known to be the thing that keeps us on them longer than anything else. Just to remind you that sharing opinion is not the same as committing to healthy, important debate of the kind that we as a church must engage in. Of understanding that our community that we're a part of here involves change, not just as a result of being in community and with each other, but as a result of being open to the changing work of Jesus, a point to which we will return. Do absolutely understand that a number of us rely on social media for our work. But please limit your use of it. Please take meaningful breaks from it. And please be wise about how it is designed to affect and influence your beautifully and very important, beautifully designed and very important mind. So on that, I just want to remind us, beautiful, wonderful bride of Christ, that within our community, there are people within one or two degrees of separation from the horror of both sides of the Israel-Gaza conflict. There are members of our community connected directly with friends and family in Gaza in, the, in conditions that most of us can barely even fathom. 
and there are members of our community connected directly with Israelis who were brutally murdered on October the 7th, who Hamas continues to threaten day by day. There are Jewish people in here and all over the city living in real and abject fear of retaliation and renewed persecution because it has happened so often before. It is not just Nazis and Muslims who have persecuted Jews. Since the earliest days of the church, Christians have persecuted, ostracized others and murdered Jews. And this is where the rubber must hit the road for us, brothers and sisters. In terms of how we speak and how we act as Jesus followers. This situation is impossible to our human minds. And it's made all the worst by this culture of misinformation and mistrust of even sources of information that we're supposed to be able to believe. But it is not impossible for Jesus, our Lord and Saviour. And it's to him that we as Christians must look to. And it will involve grief. And it will, for some of us, involve lament for all the things done on all sides of the crisis, historically done in Jesus' name. And for all of us, whatever action we take, it must involve our secure and certain belonging in the ways of his kingdom. So going back to the passage. Do the ones who influence us have their mindset on earthly things or heavenly ones. Because we, as Paul reminds us, are citizens of heaven. <clears throat> N.T. Wright, who's another wonderful theologian, goes as far as to say that this is the most misunderstood concept in the whole of Paul's writing, which is quite a thing. Some stiff competition. Being a citizen of heaven is not this idea that we're made for somewhere else, that we're waiting until we can go to the place that we've always been made for, which does actually sound quite a lot like something Paul would write, doesn't it? He, he tells us in other places to keep our eyes fixed on the, the things above, the things unseen. Being a citizen of heaven speaks very directly to the Philippians' understanding of their place in the world in ways that we might miss. Uh, Philippi became a Roman colony when, like many other places in Greece and Turkey, Rome fought and won a war here. So when Rome fought and won a war, rather than go whoop-de-doo and that's all, go back to Rome and wait for the next one, what they did was establish a colony. Actually, Rome couldn't handle, um, it was uh, overpopulated and underemployed anyway, so they didn't want anyone to come back. But this was their way of growing. Being a colony made it Roman soil, which by this time, uh, the time when Paul is writing, uh, now is um, a, a different kind of place even than it was a few years before because Nero is on the throne and Nero demanded that he be worshipped as, um, as their god. It wasn't just about imposing the sort of rules of Roman civic life and systems anymore, now this is about uh, imposing Roman religious life too. But to be very, very clear about this point, being a citizen in a colony wasn't about longing for a homeland or even having some sort of secondary status um, as a representative overseas. It was not about hoping for some one day, you know, glorious reassignment back to the capital. 
it worked the other way around. The very task of a Roman citizen in a place like Philippi was to bring Roman culture and rule to northern Greece to expand Rome to that place. So being a citizen of heaven in this letter was not an encouragement to keep their eyes fixed on future, future glory, but an encouragement to bring their identity, to bring their Jesusness, and bring heaven to where they were in Macedonia. And interesting, using Jesus' designation of saviour in verse 20, it may be language for us that we're completely comfortable and familiar with, but it's very, very rare in Paul's writing and in any writing of the early church for a simple uh, reason, that uh, saviour was the designation of uh, the Lord of Rome. I mean, what would that be an equivalent of today for us? It'd be like calling Jesus our dictator. Like, I don't even know how much we can miss what that meant to them. And what Paul was saying by calling Jesus their saviour. Resist the allure of the empire. Resist its devices, divisive, hierarchical, oppressive, power-hungry ways. Your citizenship is in heaven. You're a colony of heaven under the authority of a very different kind of Lord and saviour. I am aware that using the word colony as a Brit in this land is a little bit uncomfortable. I'd uh, like you to sit with that discomfort for a moment longer. Because the truth is, cracked through with our desire for domination, mankind has engaged in incessant conquering and enslaving since her very civilized wheels began rolling. I recently watched Chimp Empire, which is James Reed's new four-part uh, Netflix documentary about the two warring tribes in the Ngogo forest of Uganda. I don't know if you've seen it. It's absolutely brilliant. We share 98% of our genetic code with chimps. Do you know that? Which does not, to my mind, diminish in any way the very special 2% uh, that we, you know, I'm not in any way arguing that we're not made in the image of God and that there's something very powerful and mystif mystical in that 2%. But this program spoke to me powerfully about the biological origins of our fallen state. So it's the story of a dominant tribe and their aging alpha chimp, which is the biggest uh, chimp troop ever recorded, and a weaker tribe, uh, which is smaller and desperate for the fruit trees that lie within the dominant troop's territory. It is beautifully shot and is a dazzling reminder of how codified the in-out, us-them ways of the tribe are. Because it's in their very nature, not only to survive, to instinctively take up their role within the tribe that helps the tribe survive. Ain't no individualist in Ngogo. But not only to survive, to expand. And as the doc shows, these caring social creatures will turn to murderous violence in an instant will smash in the head of another chimp who would do anything to threaten the survival and expansion of the tribe. It would be more than two centuries after Paul's death that Rome converted under Constantine. But we can only imagine how strong his words would have been to a church in that era. <clears throat> because when Rome converted, 
It didn't convert its empire ways to heavenly ones. And in many ways since then, the ways of earthly empire swallowed the ways of heaven in churches across the world. Christian nations have over and over again inflicted this earthly tribal power and dominion mindset on those they've conquered with devastating effects. So since I'm British, should we just look at that one? At its peak in the 19th century, the British Empire controlled a quarter of the world's population and a third of, the world's, of, the land, of its land surface and had at its heart the same desire for wealth and power and dominance as any other empire with the same empire belief that all of humanity would benefit from adopting British culture and morals, but what made it all the more poisonous was that it included in its, its empire version of Christianity in that. Our tribal need to dominate made all the more destructive because it called earthly citizenship heavens. Let us be very careful not to do the same. Paul's message to the church in Philippi as Roman citizens is the same to me as a British citizen and you as Americans in whatever way you want to take this. You are not citizens of a place that is built on hierarchy, brute strength, and divisive in-out codes of belonging. You are citizens of a place Sorry, you are not citizens of a place, very importantly, where a worship-demanding tyrant sits on the throne, insisting on allegiance of pain of death. Not anymore. You are citizens of heaven. Our belonging is in a place where we are one, despite our differences. Where the codes of belonging are the fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Where we don't hate our enemies, we pray for them, and we love them. Your call, above all other calls, is to bring a colony of heaven to earth, to LA, to your world, your workplace, your family, your apartment block, your neighborhood block, your neighborhood, and yes, your social media account. In worship of the one who is on the throne, the savior that we worship, who is no tyrant, who is the one who gave up his very nature for us, who shows us what it looks like, who poured himself out so that we can receive him, that we can be made more and more like him. Who, in verse 21, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. So can I invite you now as we end? Um, here is Tavia. Can the worship band come up? <laughs> it's just you, Justin. Interesting. Are you right to just play until she gets here? See how this goes. Do you stand?
Can I remind you of some other things that Paul says in this passage? One of them being that we are to forget what is behind and strain ahead. Can I remind you of the very direct teaching from Paul here? That it is Jesus and knowing Jesus that changes us, nothing else. Do you think we could do, um, what was the second one we did? All Things New? That'd be great, thank you. Whatever it is that you're feeling, whatever it is that this has brought up or that you brought in here this morning, as Christians, we are called to remember where we are citizens of and what it looks like there. So let us start now by declaring again together that Jesus is on the throne. And for this era that we live in, it will always involve the lament that we're not there yet and the grief of of those around us for all of the ways in which this world is not where we were made for. But let's join together now and lift up his name.